Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jacob is on his way home after 20 years on the run. 20 years on the run from his brother Esau. 20 years away from the land of promise. 20 years away from his family. Jacob is going on his way home. And the angels of God met him. Angels are messengers. That's what the word angel means. The messengers of God meet him. And he's reminded of what happened back there in Bethel when he was fleeing 20 years ago. He's reminded of that vision with that, that ladder or that ziggurat going up and down to heaven and the angels of God descending and ascending. He's reminded that heaven is at work on earth, that the things that happen in his life are not just the things happening in his life, but they have cosmic and eternal significance. God is at work. And the angels, we can't see them, but they're always there, aren't they? They are present when we worship, says the Apostle Paul. The angels are present with us in gathered worship as the church of God. The angels are there with us when we come in and when we leave again. The Lord sends his angels to watch over us. It's not a seen thing, but it is a real thing that God sends his angels to accompany us and to go with us. And so things are looking good. Jacob's on his way home. He knows that God is with him. He knows that the forces of heaven surround him, and God gives him the rare privilege of seeing it with his own eyes. And so he says, this is God's camp. He calls the name of that place Mahanaim. Mahanaim means two camps. Here's my camp, and there's God's camp, and I'm safe because I'm surrounded by the forces of heaven. You remember later on, the, the prophet with his servant is in a situation where soldiers are coming to catch him and to arrest him and, and God opens the eyes of the servant and he sees the forces of heaven, the angels surrounding them, the fiery chariots. That's the reality in which we live. We're protected by God's angels. So things are looking good. And Jacob, verse 3, he sends his own angels because that's what the word is here. Melachim there in verse 3, Jacob sees the angels of God and he sends his angels, his messengers before him to Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. But we already see a little bit of tension in Jacob's mind and in his heart here because he, he knows that he's under the protection of heaven. He knows he's going home by the promise of God. But he's a little worried about Esau, and you can tell by the language. Look there in verse 4. Say to my Lord Esau, say to my Lord Esau, your servant Jacob. You see, Jacob knows that the work of heaven is powerful and perfect. But Jacob isn't quite certain of the power and efficacy of his work, what he has done. He knows that the last time he saw Esau, he ripped him off. He knows that the last thing he heard of Esau was that Esau was so furious he wanted to kill him. He knows that his mom, Rebecca, said, I'll send for you when Esau calms down and doesn't want to kill you anymore. But that hasn't happened for 20 years. No message has come from mom saying it's safe to come home. So he's a little worried. 
Now, you remember what the blessing was back there in Genesis chapter 27? It was that, the, that he would have all the, the wealth and the, and the riches and the, the fatness of the land. In Genesis 27, 29, this is part of the blessing that his father Isaac put upon him. You will be Lord. You, Jacob, you will be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. That's the blessing Jacob ripped off. That's the blessing he stole. And now he's not quite certain he has it because he's bowing down to Esau instead. He's calling himself the servant and Esau the Lord. And he says, verse 5, I've sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Favor, the word favor is that you would stoop down like a superior to an inferior, that you would stoop down and condescend and have grace and mercy upon me. Jacob is not certain of what kind of a reception he's going to have when he gets home. He's scared. And you know what? That's where we are, right? When we try to fix our lives, when we try to make things work, when we try to use a crowbar to, to leverage things and exploit things and manipulate things and people and God to try and get a blessing, to try and get what we want, Deep down, we're never quite certain it's going to work. We're never quite certain how useful it is. When you try to fix your life with duct tape and bail of twine, you're never quite sure that you can trust that it's going to work. And that's where Jacob is. And it gets worse because the messengers come back and they say, well, he's coming to meet you and 400 men with him. That's a battalion. That's a battalion of soldiers coming to meet Jacob who has two wives Two servants, two surrogate wives, mothers, and 11 kids, and a bunch of servants. He can't even begin to imagine how he can face an army, a battalion of 400 angry, armed men. So there he goes. He divides. If you have your Bible open, it'll be easy to follow the sermon. I'm going through the chapter here. He divides, verse 7, the people into two camps. Gone is that idea just a few verses ago, the two camps, heaven is with me and I am traveling under the protection of the forces of heaven. Now there is fear. And he's got two camps of, of people hoping that one camp will survive. We're going to get killed. We're going to get destroyed. And I'm just hoping to salvage what I can. You see, that's what happens, brothers and sisters, when we try to live our lives by our plans. They fail. Our schemes, they go wrong. And that humbles us. And it drives us to seek God's mercy and to hold on to God's promises. And that's, that's what happens here in verse 9. Jacob, all he can do is go to God and say, Lord, you told me to return. You told me to go back to my country and to my family that I may do you good. Now, I don't see a lot of good in 400 men coming to kill us all. That's what you said. I am not worthy. Here's Jacob realizing. Here's Jacob getting to where God wants him to be. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of your faithfulness, your steadfast love. 
I ran away from home with nothing. I was there in the darkness alone in Bethel. You have just given me blessing upon blessing upon blessing. I am now wealthy and have a large family. But 20 years of hard slogging, 20 years of hard work, 20 years of working my finger to the bone for my wives and for all for my children and for all the riches that I have, 20 years, it looks like it can be wiped out in a moment. And I can't do anything about it. Please, and this is where he gets to, verse 11, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, for I fear him. And so Jacob is reduced. He's, he's, he's got his back against the wall here. And, and he realizes what God wants all of us to realize, that you can't figure things out. You can't fix things in your life. You are powerless to deal with your own sin or the sins of others or the sin that is in the brokenness of this world. Your only hope is to look up and to look to him and to his power and to his goodness and to his faithfulness and to his promises and to hold on to them. Lord, this is what you told me, says Jacob, verse 12. I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob hooks in to that covenant blessing that begins with the, the proto-evangelion, the, the first proclamation of the gospel there in Genesis 3.15, where God said, look, I'm going to divide the world into two camps, the darkness and the light, the world and the church, the seed of the serpent and the seed of Satan. And the seed of the serpent is going to hurt and damage. But the seed of the woman will overcome and will destroy the powers of darkness and sin. And I'm going to do that through the line of the woman, through the seed of the woman, through the generations that will bring the world to the birth of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Jacob knows that he's in that line. Jacob knows that he's part of that promise of the Redeemer to come, that he's part of the promise that the world will be filled with believers again, with children of God. He knows he's part of that. And he knows that God always keeps his promises. So he's got the reality in front of him that he's about to die and everything that he's got, everything that he's worked for is going to be wiped away. That's, that's, those are the facts. That is the evidence before his eyes. There's no way he can escape it. But then he looks to God and says, God, you said, you said, go back, I will do you good. You said, I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea. And built into that, you said that from me will come the Messiah, the Savior of the world. That's what Jacob holds on to even when all of his senses tell him that it doesn't look like that's going to happen. He holds on to the promises of God. Well, he does that. And then in verse 13, he does something else. He doesn't just pray and trust, but a living and active, a living and true faith is a faith which is active. Jacob recognizes what every true believer recognizes that God hears prayer, that God answers us when we hold on to his promises, and he does that 
usually through the use of means. We say, give us this day our daily bread. And then we go out and work hard. We don't say, give us this day our daily bread and then sit there on the front porch waiting for bread to drop from heaven because then we're going to go hungry. We trust in God, and we know that God usually gives his blessings through the ordinary means. And so that's what Jacob does. He looks at the situation, and he says, well, I've got an angry brother. He's coming with 400 men. I'll do what I can. And he sends group after group after group of animals. Now, I did a bunch of calculations and had to look at the markets in the Middle East for camels and donkeys and goats and things, but th this is a lot of animals, hundreds of animals, and the value is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe more than a quarter million dollars. Jacob obviously is a very rich man, and he's obviously very worried because he's giving a very big, generous gift to his brother, a very valuable present. And he sends those gifts that he might appease his face. Look at, look at um, verse 20 there. He thought, I may appease him. And literally, I may appease his face. The word appease here is to make atonement. He, there's a problem. There's, a, there's, a, there's something between them that needs to be fixed. And he's hoping that he will appease the face, the angry murderous, vengeful face of Esau. That's the last thing he saw 20 years ago. He's hoping to appease that face with these gifts so that he would see his face and be accepted. Well, it's all very well and good. But Jacob is looking at and worried about the wrong face. Jacob here is falling into what we so often fall into as God's children. He's falling into the fear of man. And he needs to be fearing God instead. He needs to be worried about the face of God. And so God is about to teach him a lesson. And that's what happens in this very strange account, the strange record which the scripture gives us in the last part of the chapter, when Jacob wrestles in the dark. Verse 22, he, he sends everything he had across the Jabbok. So you've got the Sea of Galilee up here. You've got the Dead Sea down here. It's about halfway. There's the Jabbok. It's a little river or stream which goes into the Jordan. And he sends everybody south across the Jabbok towards Esau. What is he doing? He just divided his whole family, all his possessions into two camps, hoping that one would escape. Then in the middle of the night, he gets up, sends everybody over the river towards the enemy, the 400 men that are coming. I have no idea, the text doesn't tell us why Jacob did this, but it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Maybe he's so worried that he's getting irrational. Or maybe, maybe it's a strategic thing where he's saying, well, I, we need to cross the Jabbok, so I'd rather do it in the cover of darkness and without the 400 enemies close by, because when we're crossing the water, we're more vulnerable. So maybe it's a strategic thing. The Bible doesn't tell us. But the effect is, verse 24, Jacob is left alone. 
Jacob is left to himself, literally the text says. Here he is in the dark by himself. Remember the last time that happened? Way back 20 years ago when he was running away? He was in Bethel. He was in the dark. He was by himself. He had nothing. And he's back to where he was. 20 years of hard work, all ready to be wiped out in a moment. Jacob is here by himself. And a man wrestled with him, verse 24. There's a lot going on in this text, and the Holy Spirit weaves into the very language of the Scripture the, the depth of what is going on. And some of it we can see even in the English. Here is Jacob, Jacob, and he's at the Jabbok. All you do is you switch the C and the B around, right? The Jabbok, the, the, the river that he happens to be at, is the reversal of the last two syllables of his name. That's significant because there's about to be a, a great reversal which has to do with the name of Jacob. And a man wrestled with him, and that, that verb that the, that the Holy Spirit uses here is a verb for wrestling and for fighting, which you don't have anywhere else in the Scripture. It's very rarely used, just here. And the verb for wrestling is the first syllable of Jacob's name. Yaak, Jake. So Jacob is at the Jabbok, and there's this guy jaking with him. Something's going on here, which has to do with his name. And he's wrestling. It's an ancient sport, perhaps the most ancient sport. We have it from the time of Abraham, so even before Jacob. We have records in Egypt of wrestlers, and, and you can see the moves that are chiseled into the stone, and some of the moves used 4,000 years ago are still moves used by grapplers and wrestlers and people that do jiu-jitsu and other martial arts today. It's an ancient sport. The point is to immobilize your opponent on the ground. And back then, there were fewer rules. First of all, you didn't use mats like you do nowadays. You did it right in the dirt, the hard dirt. And there weren't quite so many nice rules as we have today. Back then, you could break your opponent's fingers. You could strangle him. You could push his joints beyond their natural limits. And there are no breaks. You know, you go to a, a jiu-jitsu place, and you see people having little grappling sessions. And every few minutes, they tap out, and, and, and they start another one. They have a little rest or whatever. Every now and again, they have a break for some water. Jacob's not getting none of that. He's wrestling, he's fighting for his life. Hour after hour, it's grueling, it's exhausting. One man pitted against another, fighting for his life in the darkness. Who is he fighting with? Well, Jacob's in the dark, and so are we. That The Holy Spirit leaves us in the dark because the Holy Spirit says he was a man wrestled with him. A man. Then you see in verse 25, as, as Jacob, as the man does not prevail, he, he can't pin Jacob down. Jacob has been wrestling all his life. He was born pulling on his brother's leg, grappling with his brother, trying to get ahead. He's a deceiver. He's a supplanter. 
And he can't be pinned down. He's such a slippery fellow. The man did not prevail against Jacob. He touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. That's verse 25. You know what happens when your hip comes out of its socket? It hurts. And there are some people nodding here because they know. The sciatic nerve is going right by that joint. And when things are out of place, it hurts. And you have trouble walking. And you certainly have trouble wrestling because you can't use that leg to, to have any purchase to, 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 to hold yourself to the ground or to hold your opponent down. The man touched him. And his joints, his hip goes out of joint. So Jacob, at this point, doesn't have a lot of options. He's weakened and disabled. And what he does now is he just holds on. He just holds on. And he won't let go. And, and the man is obviously desiring that this whole thing will happen at night. He doesn't want to be seen. And so he says, the day is, has broken, dawn is coming, let me go. And Jacob says, I won't. I'm not going to let you go. I'm going to hold on until you bless me. Until you bless me. Now, why would he say that? You don't ask some random stranger to bless you, not if you're a Bible-believing Christian, even in the Old Testament. You don't ask any random stranger to bless you. The, the inferior is blessed by the superior. You see, Jacob has figured out who he's fighting with. And, and we learn about that in Hosea chapter 12. If you have your Bible, Hosea 12, we get a little picture from many, many hundreds of years later, about what happens here in, in Peniel. So Hosea 12, verse 2, the Lord has an indictment against Judah, will punish Jacob according to his ways, he will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He strove with God. He strove with the angel. This is, as we have met him before in Genesis, this is the very Son of God before his incarnation. This is our Lord Jesus Christ before, as Son of God, he took on human flesh. This is our Lord Jesus Christ fighting and wrestling with our Father in the faith there in that dark night. What is going on? Why couldn't he prevail? He is all-powerful. Why couldn't he prevail? Well, you go to a martial arts place and you see on the mats a black belt Constructing a, a brand new person who's got a white belt. And you see the, the black belt on the ground 
locked in a hole by the white belt. And what do you know about that? When you see that white belt pinning down the black belt, you know that the black belt's letting him do it because he's teaching him something. He's letting him do it because he wants to teach him something. He wants to teach him to fight and to not give up. That's what's happening here in the darkness. The pre-incarnate son of God is teaching Jacob. He is a guide. He's an instructor. He's saying, learn with me. Learn from me. I want to get you to the point where you finally figure out what the lesson is. And the lesson has to do with your name. Look at verse 28. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Now, when you look at names in the scriptures, be careful because often the Holy Spirit gives us the name and then gives us a little sentence which kind of expresses the, the circumstances uh, in which that name is given. But that little sentence, that little explanatory sentence is not necessarily the definition of the name. Okay, think of Ebenezer. Ebenezer, this rock shall be called, uh, this place shall be called Ebenezer, for thus far the Lord has helped us. And then we think, well, what does Ebenezer mean? It means thus far the Lord has helped us. No, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that at all. Ebenezer literally means Evan, rock, Ezer of help, rock of help. And it's called rock of help because thus far the Lord has helped us. And so when the scripture says, you have striven with God and with men have prevailed, that's not the meaning of Israel. That's the reason the name Israel is given. What does Israel mean? A lot of people will tell you that Israel means he strove with God. He strives with God. Israel is the people that's always wrestling with God. But that's not what it means. If you look at other words, other names in the scriptures that end in L, L means God, and if a name ends in L, God is always the subject. God is always the one doing the action. Daniel, God is my judge. Emmanuel, God is with us. Gabriel, God is my strength. Raphael, God heals. Joel, Yahweh is God, or God is Yahweh. And so Israel means something that begins with God. God strives. God prevails. And to put it in modern English, Israel means God wins. God wins. And the pre-incarnate Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, our God is telling our father Jacob something. He's saying, Jacob, your life has been defined by you trying to get ahead with your own wisdom and with your own schemes and with your own deceptions. You are born that way, trying to get ahead, pulling on your brother's leg. But now I've pulled on your leg so hard that it's out of its socket. And things are going to change in your life because it's not about supplanting. It's not about taking what belongs to others. It's not about you trying to overcome and prevail, but it's about God prevailing, God 
wins. And how Jacob needs to learn this lesson. He has striven with men and prevailed. Oh, yes, but what did it get him? He cheated Esau, and he lost his brother's goodwill. He deceived his father Isaac. He lost his family. He lost everything. He lost his home. He had to run. You see, Jacob's so-called wins have brought him nothing but loss. And now the terror of 400 armed men inbound makes him realize that once again, his way will only lead to loss. Jacob has now striven with God and prevailed. He has won. How has he won? He won because Christ touched his hip and it came out of its joint. He just touched it. It's pretty clear that he was holding back all of this time because all he needed to do was just touch the hip and Jacob was reduced to nothing. So, so how can the Bible say that Jacob prevailed? How can the Bible say that Jacob won? Because he's, he's totally disabled. He's weakened. He's in the dark. He's terrified of the future. There's not a hope that he has of overcoming either this man he's wrestling with or his brother who's coming with 400 armed men. But he prevails because he learns the lesson. He figures it out. I have to stop trying to fight God. I have to hold on to him. I have to cling to him. I have to embrace him and his promises and say, God, I can only live if you bless me. I'm going to give up. That's how Jacob wins. That's how he prevails. He finally learns that his only hope is to cling to God. And God says, congratulations, Jacob. You figured it out. Here's your new name, Israel. God wins. That's your name. Carry that on you from now on. God wins. You're facing your brother with 400 men. This is my name. God wins. Your name is not Jacob anymore. You're not a supplanter and deceiver. You're not trying to get ahead with your own smarts and your own strength. You are turned around. Jacob, fighting at Jabbok, he's turned right around. And he's no longer grasping after his will, but he's holding on to God and his promises for blessing. Not my will, but thy will be done. That is how the believer gains the victory. When we come to understand that though we let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That's what Jacob had to learn. That's what every believer has to learn. And Jacob says, well, tell me your name, please. And God says to him, what are you asking my name for? Are you serious? You're asking me my name? And there he blessed him. What does that mean? Well, you remember the blessing we hear every Lord's Day. It comes from Numbers chapter 6. The end of Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and his sons have to put that blessing on the people. Now look at the end of number six there. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. God says to Jacob, are you serious? You're asking my name? I'm putting my blessing upon you. I'm putting my name on you. Your name is Israel. God wins. That's your name. And you know who I am. You know who I am. And Jacob does know. Because look at verse 30. So he called the name of the place Peniel, which means face of God. And later in verse 31, it's, it's got a different vowel there, Penuel, but it's exactly the same. It's just a variation of the name. It just means the face of God. Jacob knows very well who he was wrestling with. Jacob knows very well who has, is the only one who has the power to change his name. Jacob knows very well who has the power to just touch him and dislocate his hip. Jacob knows very well that he has been wrestling with God. He was, he was worried about being delivered from Esau's face. But now he has been face to face with God. And he has survived. And so verse 31, the sun rose on him as he passed Noel, limping because of his hip. The sun is rising. The day has dawned. Jacob is no longer in the dark. He is enlightened. He's figured it out. It's not fear of man. You don't live by fear of man. You live by fear of God. He's got a new name as he walks towards the Jabbok. God wins. And he's got a new way of living that his descendants through the generations will observe that from now on, they will not eat that part of the the body, that sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because God touched it in our father Jacob. From now on, I and my descendants will celebrate my disability. They will celebrate my weakness because God touched me. God put me out of joint. God reduced me. God humbled me. And this is my glory. In New Testament words, God is saying to Jacob, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And so Jacob and the apostles and all Christians from all times, they can say, therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. After this night of wrestling with God, you know, what is Jacob wrestling for when he begins? He wants strength. He wants to be able to meet power with power. He wants a way of facing down a battalion of 400 armed men. And he comes out of the struggle weaker than he went in, less able to fight. He's hobbling forth to meet his enemies. And everything is on the line to be wiped out. But he's got a new name. He's got a new name. And his name is God wins. God's will will be done. Now, who taught him that lesson? 
Who taught him that lesson that's the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, before his incarnation? Our Lord Jesus Christ taught him that lesson. Our Lord, who himself was in the darkness as incarnate man, as he wrestled under the garden of Gethsemane in prayer with God, and he said, oh God, oh Father, let this cup pass from me. As he faced the the enemy, the powers of hell and the hordes of demons and the very wrath and anger of God against our sin. He said, Lord, let this cup pass from me, but not my will. Your will be done. So our Lord Jesus Christ in great weakness, he hobbles forth, crippled under the crushing weight of the cross to Golgotha, to be crucified, to face the very powers of hell. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who in the darkness of the cross, all his bones were put out of joint. He is in agony. He is stripped of everything. All worldly goods, family, friends, health, and finally, life itself. And that's how he wins. He wins by losing. By losing all. That is the shape of the Christian life, brother and sister. You know, it's so hard to be a Christian in 21st century North America where we are so wealthy and so comfortable that we can't even process it. It's so hard to be a Christian when things are going well and when we have doctors and nurses and hospitals and money which can solve almost every one of our problems in some way or another. It's so hard to see the shape of the Christian life. That it is the shape of the cross. In your darkness and in your struggles, as you wrestle with God and God wrestles with you and he touches you and puts you out of joint and weakens you, and reduces you, and humbles you, and crushes you. God is teaching you. He's teaching you to embrace your weakness, to embrace your loss, and to carry the name. God wins. That's the answer. Not my solutions, not my wants, not my desires, because we've got it all figured out. God, if you just gave me a little bit more money, God, if you just took away my cancer, God, if you just got rid of my disability, God, I know exactly how to make my life happy again. And God says, no. Here, take this. Whack. There's another bone out of joint. I want you to learn the lesson. You need to hold on to God. That you need to hold on to his promises. That's how you win. Brothers and sisters, we're about to sing in response, Psalm 143, 5, 6, and 7. This is Jacob as the morning dawns. Your face, your face in love towards me turning. Show me your mercy in the morning. Nothing has gotten better overnight and it's gotten worse. But Jacob has won. Jacob has the victory. He trusts in God for his support. He looks to God to teach him the way and to guide him. He offers all of his heart. 
He looks to the Lord to save him from his foes forever and to teach him your will. Teach me your will. You are my God, the Father. Let your good spirit, the Holy Spirit, O my Savior, O Christ, lead me along a level road. This is the word of the psalmist, looking to the triune God and finding the answers in him. For your name's sake, do not neglect me. I am your servant. Lord, protect me. Deliver me from all my woe. And you know what that looks like? It rarely looks like all your problems disappearing. Hardly ever does it look like that. But God delivers us by showing us that we hope in his name. That we can say together with all believers, thanks be to God who gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. In that name which is above every other name, the only name under heaven by which man can be saved, that name that you carry, that God put on you when you were a little baby, he put it on your head. And you carry it everywhere in all your trials and all your struggles and all the temptations and all the suffering and all the pain. You carry that name, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And every Sunday, he puts that name upon you in the blessing. That name is God wins Israel. That is who we are the Israel of God. And that is enough. Amen.